I, I, I do a lot of thinking. I know that sounds like sort of a funny statement to make, but I do a lot of thinking. I, I just meditate on things constantly. And, and I, I sort of looking at our, the journey and sort of things that God's been doing um, with us, in us, individuals uh, as a whole. And I've watched there's such a beautiful uh, change in so many of us. I've watched so many of you grow in the last couple of years. I've seen so much change in you and how you are walking with Jesus and how you are letting him work in your life. But I do understand that there is a balance to all of this. And here's what I mean by that balance is, is that we could focus so much on changing that we don't allow for imperfections. Now, I know I'm going to get into this in just a moment. There's a fine line between imperfections and excuses. Every one of us in here has imperfections. But what we'll discover here in a minute, I believe, looking back through some scripture examples, and a lot of it familiar, none of this today will be groundbreaking information for a lot of us, but just to look at it again, we will find that it's a difference between imperfections and excuses. And that God will keep imperfections in us, but those imperfections He keeps in us are really to maximize what He can do in us. And I want to talk to you for a few moments today with this. This sort of hit me in kind of meditating on this and thinking about this. This sort of, this, this, this line kind of hit me. And I, I guess if you want to say it as strongly as God put this in my spirit. And it's this. Imperfect people make the perfect church. Imperfect people make the perfect church church we've all had this conversation at one point of time with another with someone who wants to point out the fact that a church is somehow disqualified for being a church because the people in that church are not perfect now we've been through this and i've been very vocal about this and in no way excusing the fact that there has been times where people walk the walk but when you get them outside of here, they don't talk to talk. I mean, I, I just, let's just call it what it is. You're elevated into places of leadership, but you're, you don't treat people well. You're, you're nasty. You're, you're not, you're not, you're not, you don't do good business practices, but yet somehow you're elevated in the church. And so because you're elevated in the church, people then see you elevated in the spiritual realm, but the way you operate in the natural realm, and they say, wait a minute, these two don't mix up. And I get that. I've watched children grow up in church and eventually walk away from God because they saw parents who would come to church, lift up hands, say how wonderful God is, pray for everybody, prophesy for everybody. But when they went home, they didn't see the same parent at home as they saw at church. And so they began to question the reality of it. And they would see people at church dote all over how spiritual their father was or how amazing their mother was, but they wouldn't see them at home. Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. My God, you come to my house, you realize that I am not a perfect parent. My wife is not a perfect parent, and we don't strive to be perfect parents. 
I don't want my children to grow up thinking that you have to be perfect. I want them to be able to say that, you know what? You can make mistakes and they don't have to define you. And when we make mistakes as a parent, we don't run for those mistakes. We say, look, that was wrong. We're forgive us. That was wrong. We don't say, we don't brush it under the rug and go on and try to say, well, they're kids. They won't realize it. Kids are smart. They pick up a more than you realize. So I, 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 as I go through this today, I understand that there, there's two sides to this. So, so take this with the context of the last two years of teaching and the last two years of statements that I've made and all that being the case. And take with all context. So the things I'm saying today is not trying to backtrack on anything that was done, but I really want to discuss something because I know some of us are struggling because it just seems like no matter how hard and whatever we do, there's just some things we just can't seem to get rid of. There's a song that that uh, is been on the radio, and we got it on our house. And I know for a lot of people here involved in government technology, they'll probably pass out when I say this. But we have Alexa in our house. I know she's probably recording everything that's going on. If that's the case, somebody at Amazon is getting the entertainment. 101, if they're listening to everything we're doing. But this song, my kids like it, and they, they, so in our house, you always say, Alexa, play this song. And so this song's been for about a month, been something that in our house, we've played, a, I don't know how many times, and on the radio, I've heard it. But there's some, some, some things in this song that really just hit me, and it's just been played. I'm sure some of you probably know it, and I'm not gonna sing it, that's not the point of it, but I want to, Uh, There's some lyrics in this that just really hit me. And it says this. If I didn't know what it hurt like to be broken, then I wouldn't know what it feels like to be whole. If I didn't know what it cost like to uh, felt like to be rejected, then I wouldn't know what your love feels like coming home. If I didn't know what it felt like to be dirty, then I wouldn't know what it felt like to be clean. If I didn't know what it felt like to have shame that drove me into the shadows, then I wouldn't understand the beauty of being free. The premise of the song, the course says simply this, maybe it's okay that I'm not okay. Because you know what? If there are some things in our life, if we didn't have, we wouldn't be able to truly understand the joy of the other side of a Savior and a God who loves us and can work in and through us. And I begin to kind of go through this list in my mind, and you know it, and I'm not going to give you anything probably today you don't know, but you go through the list of people and, you know, Abraham was too old, Elijah was suicidal, Joseph was abused, Job was bankrupt, Gideon was a coward, Samson was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, the Samaritan woman was divorced, Noah was a drunk, Jeremiah was too young, Jacob was a cheater, Jonah was a runner, Naomi was a widow. Martha was a warrior. Zacchaeus was too short and too money hungry. Then you look at deeper into this and you really start to peel out some people and you really start to see some huge major characters in the Bible. And, 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 and it's amazing that if God really wanted to make us perfect, He really should have left some of these character flaws and some of these stories 
out of Scripture because think about it. I know we've heard it, but just work with me for a moment and allow yourself to go there. Think about Paul for just a moment. Yes, he's the prolific writer of the New Testament. Wrote probably what wrote eighty percent of the books in the New Testament, and 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 probably has one of the greatest revelations of who Jesus was and what Jesus was and the living out Jesus in your life. Even though he wasn't a original follower, disciple of Jesus Christ from the Gospels, he was probably the best at helping you and I live out. Jesus in our own lives, but we often look at Paul, but, but don't forget that before the Paul, there was a Saul. And if it wasn't for the Saul, there would have never been a Paul. Because listen to the, some of the things he said that give you insight into what he thought about his life. He used this terminology like, oh, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. There was probably days I would imagine that Paul looked back at his life and the things he had done and the damage he had caused and who he was inside and the person like he felt like inside and it just came out. Oh, wretched man that I am. Or we know the, the, the back and forth he had in prayer. God, take this from me. No. God, take this from me. No. God, take this from me. No. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. We've said it before. Use it again, but just work with me for a moment. Is We hear about the beautiful stories and the journey of Paul, but I can't imagine as you walk into a village and you begin to look and you're walking in and people are running to their houses. Parents are grabbing their children because here comes the monster. Here comes that guy, the monster, who has stripped and, and, and when he walks up to them and wants to share the message of Jesus, instead of hearing the message of Jesus, they remember, you're the guy that took away my husband. You're the way, the guy that took away my son. You're the one who put my daughter in prison. You were the one responsible for the death of my child. That's what he lived with. Every place he went, come on, let's be honest. The blood of Jesus is amazing. But there's some things that are in our lives, that we live with every day, that are reminders of mistakes we've made. The blood of Jesus can erase it out of eternity, but there's some things that live forever in this world. Pray all you want, fast all you want. There's some things that just won't go away from mistakes we made. Whether it's a moment of weakness, whether it was a habit we got into, whether it was a pit we dug ourselves, whatever it was, we get into these ruts and we live with the consequences of it. And therefore we know God can forgive and we know that God's able and we come and we lift up holy hands and we know God is forgetting us for that side, but we got to live with the consequences on this side. Paul knew that. Because it didn't matter how much he shook it, he had to live with the reminder everywhere he went of the person he was. That's why he made statements like, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. That was meaning that there were times where he felt weak. What was the weakness in Paul? Probably the weakness in Paul probably was the shame and the pain of his life. The regret he had, the things in his life that were just absolutely constant reminders of the monster that he had become and, and the reputation he had come and, and all the things that had happened. Yet he lived with this, but it was the 
brokenness of Saul that created the beauty in Paul. Of all the people, look at it. We don't really see, go back and read it. We don't ever see true hunger from Saul. We don't see Saul necessarily. What he was like, we get very little bit of snippets. We know a lot of the bad stuff, and we know the fact that he was a coat checker at Stephen's execution. That's a lot of what we know. Now we can peel back the layers and based off what he did and who he was, and then we can study that and know what he was involved in. But we really don't know about the internal parts of Paul, of Saul. Then if that's the case, why would God choose him? I know I'm probably not the only one in here, but is there anybody else in here? You've ever asked the question, God, why did you ever choose me? I mean, it's kind of like, God, if I was the best you had, you have a poor selection. God, if you chose me because I'm the best you've got, then what in the world do you have to choose from? I know some of you don't think that way because you think you're all that in a bag of chips. God bless you for that. But some of us don't even have a bag of chips. We're just an empty bag of crumbs because that's all we feel like. And you wonder, God, why did you choose me? And then we, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing more encouraging to get past one thing in your life only to remind that there's more to go. And it doesn't matter, it seems like, how many boxes you seem to be able to jump over, there's always more, and then eventually say, oh my goodness, is it ever going to end? And God goes, no, no. And you ever notice that you jump over the one box only that down the road it comes back and you just came to see doing this over again and you're going, okay, God, what are you trying to do? Why, 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 why? But if I didn't know what it felt like to be dirty, I wouldn't know what it felt like to be clean. If I didn't know what it felt like for shame to push me in the shadows, then I wouldn't know the joy of being free. If I didn't know what it felt like to be broken, I wouldn't know what it felt like to be whole. This is sort of the back and forth. and You go deeper. I mean, come on, these are stories we're all familiar with, but you've got this guy named David. Oh, the guy after God's own heart. Such a great guy. Everybody wants to be David. Oh, David, 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 David. But the guy was a creep. Let's call it what it is. Can I just say this? I was in a conversation not too long ago with a group of preachers. Shouldn't tell this, but it's not the first thing I have, shouldn't have said over the pulpit and probably not the last thing I shouldn't have said over the pulpit. Just sort of my lot in life. I don't know how in the world we got on the subject. They got to talking about this David and Bathsheba thing. Now, thankfully, this is truth. These were not preachers in this church. I don't know if that helps the situation, but just kind of give you context. And they were trying to dissect this story. And then they were going to town and, oh man, you know, she had to have known that he was out there and she's up on the, she's up there taking a bath. Man, I'm telling you what, she was out there. She was getting it for David. And I, I sat there for a few minutes and I'm like, you keep going. And they were really kind of, after a while, 
kind of making David out to be the, the victim. So I sat there for a few moments and I just finally said, excuse me, I'd like to share. With all respect, has anyone ever picked up a Bible? Because if you go read that passage and you study it, David was not the victim. He was a creep. Because here's why. Go back, read it. I know it's a mixed company here, but let's roll with it for a second. It was required by the law that after time of the month that a woman would go through a ritual bathing. She was doing what was her commitment under the law. She was following what she was supposed to do. It was the creep on the rooftop that knew when she'd be out there that snuck out to the rooftop to look. She she wasn't the instigator. He was. That's the kind of guy this dude was. The guy after his own heart. Out there on the rooftop. Sneaking a peek. Now, let's be honest. If that's the case, he should be disqualified. But it's one thing to take a peek. But he didn't stop there. And not to get too into it. So please work with me here. I'm trying to be as, as um, discreet as possible. We knew it was a ritual time because we know after the ritual time, there comes a fertilization time. How many times did they have relations? Not very many. But she got pregnant. So not only did he instigate, he brought her there. And, and then because he was such a messed up dude, he tried to have her husband killed and covered up. Of all the stuff, this guy should be kicked out, stripped. If he was pastor in a church, he would be all over the papers, destroyed. Now, I'm not excusing that. But this is the kind of guy we're talking about. We killed Goliath. He did this, a lion and a bear and all. Yeah, but look at the guy that was there. But yet, he was chosen of God, called of God. I'm not excusing him. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just simply saying that if that didn't disqualify him, what in the world do you think? Why should we disqualify people? Because they make a mistake. That's why I'm not trying to be retarded. That's why the perfect church is a group of imperfect people. Because if you can't find reconciliation anywhere, you should find it in the church. If there's not a place where you can find a path back from the pit of where you've dug yourself, if it's not a safe place where you can say, hey, I'm not perfect, and we go, neither are we. That's why we love you. Keep going. I mean, think about this. We know Moses. My man, my Moses was all over the place. Moses was a murderer. Moses was a stutterer. Moses was just messed up. He was a mental basket case. That guy was mental. Literally, he was mental. If Moses was alive today, there is no telling 
what labels they would put on Moses. Panic attacks, anxiety, all kinds. The guy was a basket case. That's literally, if you want to read a classic case of anxiety and panic attacks, read Moses. The guy was always all over the map. This guy was not the fearless leader that we want leading our people away from the most powerful army in the world. Hey, let's pick that dude. Can't talk, scared to death, panic attacks, making up stories about bushes in the... No one saw that bush. How do we know that bush was there? He told us. We don't know if he made it up or not. He wrote the story. He could have said it was anything. He said it was a bush. It was in the Bible. We take it at his word. It's in the mouth of the bush. But no one else saw the bush. Here's this panic attack, anxiety ridden dude that we probably should put on the sidelines. Let's pick him to lead. Why not pick somebody else? Work with me here. I know it, I know I'm being a little extreme, but you gotta be extreme because you gotta look at these were some extreme people. Why not pick somebody else? You can't mean to tell me that he was the best Israel had. There's no way. And you know good and well, based off the conversations he had with God, he would just said, Let me stay in this on this backside of the desert. Don't pull me off this. But God chose him. Chose him. How about this one? This is a, one of the ones that's sort of lost. Maybe a name you've heard, but you don't really know the story. How about Tamar? She left her family at a young age to marry into a family in Judah. And at this time, a woman's value is really determined on her ability to conceive. Especially offspring, especially a son. So her first husband, Ur, couldn't conceive, so God struck him down. And then this dude named Onan was the brother of Ur. So Ur and then Onan. And Onan refused to conceive with Tamar. And so God killed him. And then, because the law demanded this, she went to the third brother, Ur, Onan, and... Yeah, Fred. (laughs) Went to the third brother... And struck out with him. And she was so desperate to conceive a child, she ended up seducing her father-in-law and ended up conceiving a son from her father-in-law by the name of Perez. Now, we don't know Perez. You don't know much about him. But go back and look at the lineage of Jesus Christ. Guess who's in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Old Perez. Perez was in the lineage of David. If you go back from David to Jesse and you keep going up, he's like his eighth great grandfather. Perez. Perez, the child conceived from Tamar seducing her father-in-law was put into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now I have counseled some people and I've heard stuff that I pray every day God let me forget because it's like this is crazy stuff. But I have never yet counseled a woman who went from brother to brother to brother to father-in-law. 
If we had that story today, we would go, she needs her own church over there because we would label her as this or label her as that or label her as this. But yet God said, hey, I'm going to put that in my lineage. Why would God choose to put into the lineage of His flesh that story if He's not trying to tell you and I, I'm not really all that worried about your mess-ups. We're so freaked out because we messed up. We're so freaked out because we have mistakes. And I'm not excusing any of that and saying it's okay to go out and go crazy. All I'm simply saying to you today is the devil is a liar. You're not disqualified. You're not messed up. You've not done too much that God can't give you His grace and His mercy to help you through. You're not too messed up that God can't work in you and through you. My goodness, we said it before. Go look at one of the best examples in all of Scripture. Peter. We know Peter was messed up. He denied Jesus three times. But then if you go back and look at Peter as a whole, 50% of the time Peter was either doing or saying the wrong thing. Peter is the guy that Jesus put his finger in his face and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's the dude. But yet, this is the same God. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He didn't say, upon this rock, I will fill my church. And then Peter messed up. I will take this rock back and put it in my pocket because you're not worthy to carry it. He didn't show up at the resurrection and see Peter and say, Peter, come here. Stand here, son. Now, I gave you a chance to prove to you, prove to me that you love me. Not only didn't you mess up once, you messed up twice, you messed up three times. Peter, get out of my kingdom. If Jesus didn't kick Peter out of his church, why should we kick people out of our church? Mm. If Jesus invited the broken into his church, shouldn't we be a place where the broken feel welcome in our church? I wonder who's really running our church if people who are broken and have issues and faults and failures can't find refuge and strength, as Sister Maria said, in the body of Christ. What kind of church do we really have? Because it's not a Jesus church. It may look like a church, smell like a church, and act like a church, but it's not a church. A church that a place where people can't be real with one another and say, God, I'm mad at you. And the body of Christ says, but it's okay, sister. We'll, we'll, we'll minister to you. That's what a true church of the living God is all about. Because you know what? I gotta be honest with you. When I heard that story, I like, she gotta share that because you know what? I have been around a long time and there has been times if somebody would have been that real, it would not have been pretty. If somebody would have said, God, I'm mad at you, we'd have said, ooh, we need to call the bishop right now because this person is, just needs to be taken out because they're, they're just, no. But you know what's beautiful? When you start trying to, when you're try, trying to model Jesus and you start trying to be like Jesus and you say it doesn't matter or anything else, we want to be like Jesus. When someone says, I'm mad at God, it says, it's okay, baby, we've been there too, but we can help you through this. When somebody comes to you and says, I'm struggling, you say, it's okay, we've struggled too, but we can get through this. When somebody says, I've come and I messed up, you don't go on Facebook and say, guess what, so-and-so messed up. It's like, it doesn't matter, I've got your back. 
It's amazing. Here, Brother Bickley. I'll tell you, years ago, the bishop, the first time he went to Pakistan and, and went to uh, be a part of that ministry, this was back 2009-ish or so. It was, still, it's, it was still hot and heavy in that country. America exactly wasn't on the top of their list. So when you get there, at, when you arrive at the airport, the way they work it, it's, it's a security reason a lot. You don't, there's no really daytime flights. Everything from outside of the country arrives in the middle of the night. I'm talking about 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And it's a very weird setup. If you've ever been to an airport in America, it's, it's totally different. Because you're not allowed in the airport. You're not allowed to walk in the door of the airport unless you are a ticketed passenger. So when you get there... And you are never experienced it before. It's kind of wild because when you get there and you go to the airport, it's like empty. You're like, what's the middle of the night? No one's here, okay? But when you open up the door and the windows are, the doors are like usually frosted over so you can't see out. And when those doors open up and there's like 5,000 people, I'm not joking. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people covering all around, waiting for flights to arrive. It's a wild feeling. So Bishop Wright had gone over there with, 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 uh, with my brother, and they had done this before. And so they get there, right? And, and, and we're, you know, just Americans trying to find our way. And so they get there in the middle of the night, not expecting this. They walk outside, and there are literally thousands of Pakistani Muslims looking at you. And you're the only two vanilla milkshakes in the entire crowd and everybody knows when you get off that plane you're not from around these parts are you and so the funny part of the story and I'm trying to get to something here the funny part of the story is when they walk out there the missionary was late so they were there by themselves and my dad having a sort of a blonde moment I guess if you want to call it that had purchased bag tags for his suitcases that were about this big. One side had his name and information, but the flip side was this giant American flag. So imagine four pieces of luggage with giant American flags. And so literally, it probably was only about 10 minutes, but I'm sure to them it felt like five hours. They stood. My brother stood like this. My dad stood like that. And he said, you watch that way and I'll watch that way. And they stood like this for 10 minutes waiting for the missionary to arrive so they can make it out alive. Because they didn't want to turn their back. You know what's sad is there's a lot of times I've had to come to church with a buddy and say, you watch that side and I'll watch this side because I know if I turn my back, somebody's going to get me. Because I've got my suitcases with my flags of hurt, my flags of shame, my flags of brokenness, and I'm carrying my suitcases in and I've got to find a buddy. Protect me. Because I can't turn my back on my brother and my sister. Come on, people. We're really going to reach the world if we can't even love one another? Oh, you don't know what they've done. You tell me on this list how bad have they really done. You don't know how they treat me. Exactly how have they were treated. Do you want, what if Jesus played that game? 
Let's play Jesus for a moment like Jesus did. Can you imagine? Sitting there, resurrected. All his glory. Peter comes up. Come here, John. You can play Peter. See, you should sit there, man. You're going to move spots. Peter comes up. You stand right there. and Just come close, a little closer. And then Jesus hits him with the... I'm not talking to you. You hurt me. Three times you told people you didn't even know who I was. Do you know how many years we spent together? Do you know how many battles we went through? Do you know all the blood, sweat, and tears? And this is the thanks I get from you. It's going to be a while since next time I can trust you. And, and it's going to, I'm going to have to work through some forgiveness before I can even look at you anymore. Mm. If anybody would have been justified with that attitude, Jesus would have been justified having that attitude. I mean, come on. But yet, he looked at Peter. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, Peter, if you love me. Instead of making, watch this, ready? Instead of making Peter earn his trust again, he gave it back to him and said, I still love you. I still love you. Thank you, Peter. (laughs) What about all these individuals? But see, What about not only how we view others, but really this goes back to how we really ultimately see the failures in ourselves. Go back and read if you would one day, not now. I'll skip through it. But go back and read John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 15. Those three verses, of those three passages of Scripture, 13, 14, and 15. This is sort of the events leading up to the, to the death of Jesus Christ. And there's this ongoing conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, kind of preparing them for what's to come. And there's this back and forth with really dealing with their weakness of faith. Really dealing with the fact that after all this journey together, that these guys were so weak in their faith. Now, it's one thing, Sister Ivy, for us to struggle with our faith because we've never seen God. We've never touched God. We've never been able to hold His hands. He's never broken bread in our presence and fed us. No, you know, there, there may be some legitimate human struggles with the fact, God, are you there? I can't see you. Where are you? But these dudes ate with Him, walked with Him, talked with Him, he fed them. I mean, come on. He walked on water for them. He got them out of storms. He saw, I mean, these guys saw some stuff, and yet they were struggling with their faith. In chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15, there was this back and forth of this struggle with faith, believing he was who he said he was after everything and he seen, but he was so patient and so loving and so kind with them. In all of this, and he, and he, he had some things that he kept saying to him. He kept saying, look to me. Look at me. Keep your eyes focused on me. Keep looking at me. I'm the resurrection of life. When you see me, you've seen the Father. He keep looking. Look at me. 
If you're, you're, you're getting your eyes off of me. You're getting your eyes on everything else. You're listening to many other voices. Listen to me. Look at me. One thing Jesus always responded well to was when people confessed to them. When you, Jesus, when they would open up with their struggles, he didn't shun them away. Because when we find many, many times that when we open up to him, we find that really our opening up allows him to deal with the thing under the thing. Remember the story we preached it, and I was telling my wife the other day, I don't think any of I've, anything I've ever ministered, ever preached, ever taught in my life has been more quoted than the thing under the thing. You use it on me. You know, Brother Wright, that's the thing under the thing. You know, Pastor Joel, that's the thing under the thing. The thing under the thing. Remember the story. The guy walks up to Jesus and says, Hey, my son needs help. And how many times did Jesus just say, Okay, bring him here, I'll heal him. But Jesus didn't address the son. That Jesus addressed him. And finally, when the man looked at Jesus, and he, Jesus said to him, Listen, hey, if you can believe, all things are possible. All things are possible to him that believe. And he looked back at Jesus, and we finally got to the thing and the thing. I believe. Help thou my unbelief. His son wasn't the problem. It was the unbelief that was the problem. Because the moment he confessed his unbelief, Immediately, the next verse, Jesus healed his son. Once they addressed what was really the case that was happening. And when I am able to be transparent with God, it really is not about being transparent about what I'm going through. It's really the ability to be transparent about the thing that's under the thing. And when God can address what's really under the surface, the thing under the thing, That's where God does his best work. I said this back then, I'll say it now. We all come to God with a thing. We've got a thing. You've got a thing today. Every one of you has a thing. It may be something in your life. It may be something you're going through. It may be an individual. It may be a need. Whatever it is, you've got a thing today. But why doesn't God take care of the thing? Because God's more interested in the thing under the thing. And if he can take care of the thing under the thing, then he will immediately deal with the thing. But we don't want him to mess with our under thing because it's the thing that we feel like, God, don't you know my boy is messed up? He said, yeah, but what's the real issue here? If you believe all things are possible, to him to believe, okay, you got me. I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I believe. Help them, my unbelief. So really today, this is not a excuse or an attempt to excuse behavior. It's really to point out the fact that we're all broken. We all have trouble. We all have difficulty. And that doesn't disqualify us. Because look at these people. Because we've often said, hey, you know, let's be like Jesus. We're going to be like Jesus. That's our desire to be like Him. And so therefore, what do we do in response? We say to each other, that's it. Let's go be like Jesus. But more often we find instead of being like Jesus, we feel like something else. So many people, 
have tried, so many people have failed. You talk about the grace of God, the mercy of God, but in the end, it always feels like it's dependent upon us. And because it's dependent on us, we try and we try and we try and we try and we fail and we fail and we fail and we fail and we try and we try and we try and we try and we fail and fail. And eventually, we just say, forget it. That's it. I'll never be like so-and-so. I always love the fact, and, and this is a wonderful man, but I'm, so, so I, this is not an indictment of Brother, Brother Bickley, but I'll just use him as an example because he can handle it. I always love the fact that, so, well, I'll never be like Brother Bickley. I'll never be able to get it like him. And Brother Bickley's going, I'll never be like so-and-so I, because all you see is this. And even though Sister Bickley would consider this fine specimen of man meat right there, not a perfect guy. <laughs> not perfect so when I look at somebody and I assume just because I can see them on a two hour basis Sunday morning well I'll never be like them I gotta be honest with you for years it was like well I'll never be like the bishop you're right you'll never be like the bishop cause he's imperfect and it's hard to be able to mimic imperfection no artist looks at a mistake and goes, oh, let's see if I can copy that mistake. Because mistakes usually are unique to the individual. I don't want to be like Brother Tino as much as I love him or Brother Bickley as much as I love him. I want to be like me. In all of my glory, in all of my thoughts. We see this back and forth, this whole thing, and really as we get down to the crux of it for the next... 10 minutes or so, this is really the issue. And that is, it goes back to what we taught about years ago at Anatomy of Disciple. When we look at our flaws, it's not the flaws that's the problem. It's what do we do with them is the problem. And usually what happens is our flaws cause us us to go into this self-motivation mode that I'm going to fix it. I'm going to discipline myself out of it. I'm going to modify my behavior. I'm going to do all this to get myself straight. And it's so frustrating to have that conversation where you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, Self, look at me. That's it. You're done. And you feel empowered. And you feel ready to take on the world. And you get that one day and you're like, Yes, it's working. And then two days later you go, There it goes again. And this struggle that going back and forth of how do we deal with our own frailties and deal with some things that we're going through and how do we change things that God is wanting to change but be at peace with the things He's leaving. And Paul said this to Galatians. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Bring that full circle to today. How many of you in here have been baptized? It's not a trick question. It's a good question. You can raise your hand. So if you've been baptized, how much effort went into that baptism? How many of you in that baptism did 
someone say to you, now, I want you to tell me on a scale of one to ten, how bad are your sins? And based off the scale is the number of seconds we'll hold you in that water or maybe the times we'll dunk you. Because if that's the case, some of you may have drowned because we've had to keep you in there so long. But you know what the beauty about it is? I don't know. I've baptized hundreds of people. And there's nobody I have put in that water more than enough to get them wet and to pull them out. Why? Because it's nothing that I could do to repay the sin I've done. So I accept the mercy and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ knowing that it cannot be done, but it's a work of the Spirit. Can you please tell me that if it was good enough for me on the day of redemption, why isn't that blood still good for me today? That's what Paul was trying to say. If he washed you the first time and you couldn't do anything about it, why do you think now that you can outdo your bad with good? It's amazing to me how spiritual people get and the more spiritual they get, the more self-righteous they become because they forget the fact the reason we're standing here was because the mercy and grace and the blood of Jesus. And it doesn't matter the fact that I've been living for Him for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. The same blood that forgave me on day one is the same blood that forgives me on day 5,221. Oh, foolish Galatians, how do you think this could start in the spirit and in the flesh? Meaning, oh, foolish Antioch West, how can you begin this journey by allowing him to forgive you? But now you want to work your way to forgiveness. Doesn't work that way. But Paul went over and over. We see this played out again and again. We've tried it, we've tried it, we've tried it. We've tried to change through moral platitudes. We've tried to change through be good practices, do good practices. I mean, come on, how many of you have, or have ever felt this way and God forbid ever said it? Just go try harder. That's code word for go make God your enemy. Literally. I've heard preachers say that. God forbid. Have you picked up a Bible? Go try harder. Really? You're asking someone to go to God. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Because you know what? When you try harder, God's like, if you want to try harder, I'll just resist you more. Because I'm not going to let you get out of this your own way. I'm not going to let you outdo your sins through your own works. Because if that's the case, then you are your own savior. And the cross is of that effect. The problem is, God forbid people have had some semblance of success living that life. Woo! Sometimes the hardest people are the ones that think they're getting it right. Man! When really, they're really all wrong. And so you get the short-term victory, but you lose the true experience of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we go back and forth with this and you're trying to deal with your own frailties and your own difficulties and your own shortcomings by trying to overcome them by doing good or trying to overcome them by somehow outweighing these things and you just feel like after a while 
that it can't happen. And then you go to God and you say, God, help me. What am I supposed to do? And you get frustrated because some things he changes and some things he just leaves alone. God, what are you doing to me? What are you willing to do to me? But you know what? We said this before. Who is the ultimate agent of change? God. All true and authentic change. Remember that from last Anatomy of the Disciple? All true and authentic change begins with God. True change. Because you know what? Life is like a giant game of pickup sticks. You ever play the game of pickup sticks? Not as popular anymore. But as a kid, we used to play it. The idea of the game of pickup sticks, you throw all the sticks down and then you have to remove one stick out of the pile without disturbing the other sticks. The beginning of the game is always usually easy because there are several sticks that are out in the perimeter. So if you're the first one to go, you usually take the ones that are easiest. That's life, right? There's always some perimeter sticks that we can get rid of and we get confidence. Look what I did. I got rid of this and my life is still intact. But you see, the problem is the closer you get to the core, the closer you get to the center of the pile of sticks, the more things are connected. And it's really hard to see, can I touch this without disturbing that? And then eventually it gets to the point where it's basically impossible to do anything because everything is connected. And guess what? You usually end up losing the game because it gets to the point where there's too many sticks that are connected. Can I be honest with you? I think some of you are at that point in your life where you feel like your life is like a game of pickup sticks and you've sort of gotten to the core and you don't know which stick is left. But you know what's amazing? God doesn't play by our rules. And so when God is the agent of change, he knows exactly the sequence in which things are to be taken care of. So if I trust him with it, I rely on him, not my ability. I always tell people, if I could fix it, I already fixed it, right? If I could fix it, I would have fixed it already. But because it's not fixed, proves I can't fix it. So what is there left to do? What's left there to do is just say, okay, God, I present myself before you. You know my faults. You know my shortcomings. God, you know everything about me. You know every thought, every moment of frailty. And God, I can't fix any of this. I've tried. And you know what, God? Forgive me for trying. And thank you that you love me enough that you didn't let my efforts succeed, that you forced me back to you to fall on you in your mercy and grace. A lot of you don't know this man's story. Because you see only what you see every Sunday. Hands lifted. Tears flowing down his face. You don't know this guy's story. 
A lot of pickup sticks in your life, isn't that right, Brother Jack? A lot of different things in his life that he's had to deal with. And how many things left, Brother Jack, that are just still there, that they're just there? How, long, how many years now have you been around? Since 1980. Close to 40 years of picking up sticks. 40 years. That means when you came here, you were a young man. How old? 18 years old. 18. I can't imagine how many prayers Brother Jack has prayed in 40 years of God, take this, God, do this. After 40 years, there's some things that God's left. But I love this man's spirit and this man's attitude because every time there's an opportunity, you'll see him perfect. This guy's not perfect. Am I right? Let's just let the cat out of the bag. He's not perfect. He's got faults. He's got issues. He's got failures. He's not a perfect person. But I love the fact that he just lifts his hand to heaven every time. God, if there's any sticks you want today, take them. But if you're just going to leave those sticks, your grace is sufficient. God, I want you to know I got some sticks here today. If you'd like to take them, feel free. But if not, your grace is sufficient. Do we all have sticks today? Absolutely. Plenty of them. God, it would be awesome today if somehow he came and swept to this place and boy, there was just things flying all over the place and sticks being broken and all kinds of good stuff. And be like, yes, these are awesome. And we walked out here going, we're stick free. This is great. But you know what? We're living in a world that has nothing but sticks. So we're not ever going to get to the point where we're a stick-free church where we can pat each other in the back and go, well, guess what, Antioch West? We finally got rid of all our sticks. Because you know what? Stickless people cannot relate to those with sticks. Stickless people can't really get down in the trenches with people that have got sticks they don't even know what to do with. But when I can come in this place with all my pickup sticks scattered all over the place, and I can lift up my hands and say, God, here I am and all my brokenness and all my frailty and all my shame and all my regret, but I still love you, God. And God reaches down with a love and a compassion when I see somebody else that has the same sticks I do. I can say, hey, there's a God that loves you you even though you've got some sticks so instead of trying to get rid of your sticks why don't you start finding people with sticks like you so you can say God if God loves me he can love you hey you see me on Sunday I may look good but let me show you some of my sticks if God can love me with my sticks baby there is nothing that you've got oh well you don't know what I've been you don't know what I've done well let's pull out some sticks in the Bible have you ever slept with a woman killed her husband you ever slept with three brothers and her fa- and the father-in-law We 
got more stuff in the Bible, more sticks we know what to do with. But you know what? I love reading the Bible because I can see a lot of sticks. But I see a God who doesn't really look at my sticks. I see a God that just says, just bring me your ashes and I'll give you beauty. You know what? God doesn't want you to get rid of your sticks. He wants you to come and just say, here's my sticks, God. Here's my ashes. And God says, okay, I'm going to make something beautiful out of it. Instead of pick up sticks, he gets Lincoln logs. Because it may look like a pile of sticks, but he'll make something beautiful out of nothing. God doesn't just pick up your broken pieces Throw away, he makes something beautiful out of it. You've heard the story, and I'll, I'll finish with this. It's, time is fastly approaching. You've heard the story before. I've used it before, but just let me say it again. There's always new people. There was a violinist, the world's finest violinist, that had sought out on a journey to find the perfect-sounding violin. This was his desire, his goal, his dream was to find the violin that was the best sounding in the world. So he traveled all over the world interviewing violin makers to determine who was the most skilled of the group. Finally, he settled on this man who was older, had made hundreds of violins, who had the reputation, the skill, the knowledge, the mix of old craftsmanship with new technology. And he finally said, this is the guy that's going to make me the best violin that's ever been made with the most beautiful sound that's ever been produced. And so he gave the man the task, and after several months of toil and work, finally they made arrangements to meet, and the violin maker shared with the violinist his prized work of art, and he said, I've never spent more time, more effort, on building such a beautiful instrument And I am so excited and honored today to present this to you. And so he took it and he placed it and put it upon his his shoulder and nestled his chin to it and took out the bow and began to play for a few moments. And after a few moments, he suddenly changed and said, not to be offensive to you, sir, but it's not good enough. I've played stuff that sounded like this. This is good, but it's not good enough. Would you mind going and trying it again? And so he took it, went back and looked at all the possible ways he could change, all the tweaks he could make. What can I do to make this better? And he toiled and toiled and toiled and toiled. And finally, he made enough modifications that he was willing to present. And so they arranged to give him. He said, sir, here, I've, I've done what you've asked and I've tried. Try this. I think I've, I finally found the right answer. And so he took it out, nestled against his shoulder and began to play. And after a few moments, he, he suddenly got discouraged again and said, I'm, I'm sorry to say this. And, and it sounds wonderful and beautiful, but it's not the sound I'm looking for. It's not that sound it's just not it and so he said could you try again and so he should sure and so went back and this went back and and several more times this happened again and finally after several times they presented it to him and 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 after a while the violinist was getting frustrated because it just wasn't seeming to happen and and finally one day he's playing and, and and he just gets so mad and he just takes the violin and he smashes it on the table and pieces go everywhere and he just says i i it's never gonna happen it's done Finished. Storms out of the room and the violin maker looked at his creation shattered on the ground. This is blood, sweat, tears. This is hours and pieces of life. This is missed opportunities with family because you were toiling in a workshop. He didn't see just broken pieces. He saw himself in this violin. So as the violinist stormed out of the room, he reached down and picked up the pieces. All of them. 
made sure even the smallest, most minuscule piece, he got every one of them. Went back to his workshop. He laid all those pieces out on the table. And because it wasn't just a violin to him that it was a piece of himself, he decided, I'm going to put all this back together again. For months, he toiled piece by piece. Piece by piece. This piece here, does this piece, where does this piece go? Like the jigsaw puzzle with no ending, he put these pieces back together painstakingly, painstakingly, painstakingly. When all said and done, he waited for it to cure, sanded it down, put a fresh coat of lacquer over it. He got inspiration. He called the violinist back up. He said, would you give it one more chance? He goes, but I've already tried so many times. It's just not even, he said, just, just give me one more chance. Finally, he said, fine. Same song and dance, right? Same deal. Puts that violin up to him. Now, by this time, he's expecting this is a pointless endeavor. And the violin maker is expecting the same results, but let's try again. Violin to the shoulder, chin nestled, bow ready, begins to play. The anticipation would be the same length as before. 30 seconds, 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds. All of a sudden, the room became quiet. Still, nothing was moving because music continued to fill the room. It was playing. And where he normally would stop, they just kept playing. And now minutes were turning into more minutes. Playing, 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 playing. Finally, after a long, long period of playing, the violinist came out of this sort of moment he was in and opened his eyes and he looked in just absolute disbelief at the violin maker and he said, How did you do this after so many failed attempts? How did you finally do this? I've got to know. I've got to know. Tell me what the secret was. He said, When you broke that violin, I took all the pieces. And he said, What sounds so beautiful to you came from a pile of broken pieces. See, the beauty of the sound that you make when you worship God is not because you're some perfect instrument that's never been marred. The reason why you lift your hands, why I feel the Holy Ghost, the reason why you lift your hands and make such a beautiful sound is because when you worship Him, you're worshiping Him from a pile of broken pieces. That's why when you worship, it sounds different than when I worship because we're not all broken the same way. So when I lift up my hands and say, Jesus, I love you because you cared. I couldn't imagine if you weren't there. Jesus, I love you because you cared. I couldn't imagine if you weren't there. 
When I sing that song, I sound one way. But when you sing that song, you sound another way. Has nothing to do with the key or can you sing or not. It's the fact is, your pieces make a different sound. And when He hears us sing, He doesn't just hear a church sing, but He hears every individual voice because He's the violin maker. He doesn't just see instruments, but He sees Himself. Don't let the devil convince you today that you're just a pile of pieces because there's a creator, there's a loving God, there's a master that's able to reach down in your life and what would seem to be something to be discarded is exactly what he needs to make something beautiful. Would you stand with me today? Oh, I can't. You know why it's so wonderful today? That we've got, we're going to celebrate it next week. We're going to celebrate our diversity next week. By the way, really quickly, if you're a Spanish speaker, Korean speaker, or Filipino speaker, you need to be over here after we're done for Brother Jetty. But the beauty about next week is, is that if we all looked the same and, and acted the same, we wouldn't make a beautiful sound. But it's the beautiful deal that we're black and white, yellow and green and purple. We come from all different aspects of life and different backgrounds. We've got some that have money and some with no money, some with education, some that can't spell education. And we've got all this stuff. When we come together and worship, we come together with broken pieces. But when we come together is broken pieces. It's imperfect people that make a perfect church. It's the imperfect. I'm not speaking to those in this room, but I'm calling out in the Spirit today. I'm calling out in the Spirit today. I'm sending an SOS in the Spirit out today. If you're broken and you're hurting, there's a place for you in the body of Christ. Bring your pieces, bring your brokenness, bring your hurt, bring your pain, bring your shame. And there's a place for you because it's imperfect people that make a perfect church. Would you just lift your hands right now to heaven all over this place? I've, I've gone a little long and I've, I, I'm not going to apologize because Jesus is so heavy in this place right now. Because he's trying to get to realize something. You're imperfect, but you're perfect because you're imperfect. It's your imperfection that makes you perfect. It's not because you have every die dot and every T cross. It's because you're imperfect that makes you perfect. Stop trying to fix all your flaws. Stop trying to get rid of everything. You just put your trust in Him. If He wants it fixed, He'll fix it. If He doesn't want to fix, He'll give you the grace to keep walking. It's His grace and mercy. His grace and mercy. His grace and mercy. God, I need your grace and mercy. I need your grace and mercy. I'm not just saying that rhetorically to get you to pray it. That's my prayer today. God, I need your mercy and I need your grace because Joel cannot do it. Joel is messed up and broken. Joel has got too many pieces shattered. I need your mercy and grace that you would take my ashes and make it beautiful. Come on, tell him first for a second. We got just a moment. Confess to him today. God, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I've got too many. I've got pieces. But God, I know.
come on, just another moment. I'm not going to apologize. I don't. I, I, if you've got to go, you've got to go. But God is in this moment right now. Would you reach up to heaven right now? Because heaven is reaching into this room. There's something happening in this place today. There's a power and the love of Jesus Christ that's flowing in this place. If you're not praying for yourself, let's take a moment and be sensitive to someone around you. Because God's trying to tell somebody today that you matter. You matter to me. I need your broken pieces. I need your scattered dreams. I need your hurt. I need your shame because I'll take it and make it beautiful. I'll make it beautiful. I don't need your perfection. I want your imperfection. I don't need you to be perfect. I want your imperfections. Oh, come on, just reach over next to somebody right now. Let's just pray one for another for just a moment. I can't pass this moment up. God is in this place. The reality of heaven is in this place. The beauty of the cross is in this place. The wonderful love of Jesus is in this place. Oh, there's a river that's flowing in this place. I need your grace. Come on, just another moment. God is doing something in this place. You don't see it on the surface, but you can feel it in the spirit. Not for one day. I need your mercy. I need your grace today, Jesus. Oh, I need your mercy. I need your mercy. I need your grace. And I need your hand. Just leading the way. I can't make it without you. Not for one day. I need your mercy and your grace. I need your oh. grace. Oh. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your Your mercy, Jesus. I need your grace. Come on, if you're not praying, would you sing this as a prayer? I need your mercy.